You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania Health Systems with your host, Northwestern University internist, Dr. Lee Friedman. Orthopedic procedures for severe osteoarthritis are traditionally challenging. Worries include post-op complications like DVT and pneumonia, post-operative pain, and prolonged rehabilitation and recovery times. What developments promise better experiences for our patients needing these procedures? I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and with me is Dr. Craig Israelite, Assistant Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Israelite. Oh, it's my pleasure. Why don't we take a step back and, and just think about osteoarthritis before it gets to the point that uh, a patient needs a procedure from you? Well, how should we be thinking about osteoarthritis? Well, osteoarthritis, number one, is not old age. We all get osteoarthritis at some point, and it really begins, you know, around age 30 and beyond. So we don't really think of it as a disease so much. It's just a progression of your normal lifespan. But what it essentially is, is when you were born, all the joints of your body, so your finger joint, your knee joint, your hip joint, wherever two bones come together and bend, that's a joint. And these joints are covered with a material called articular cartilage. It's a very special material that you're born with, and it's really like a smooth, low coefficient of friction surface. So if you took a bowling ball, that's the analogy I use in the office. If you take a bowling ball and you roll it down, the, and down a bowling lane, it's very nice, slippery, and smooth. It goes right down. If you put a cracker chip in a bowling ball and you roll it down a bowling lane, it, it's no longer smooth. It kind of jumps and, and skips along. Essentially, that's what osteoarthritis is. It's the wearing away of the covering of the bones. And once that happens, instead of this low friction surface, it starts to grind and cause pain and inflammation about the joint. And so, so that's what we're talking about here today. And I imagine as well as just normal aging, there may be certain occupations or other activities that might predispose to uh, this happening either earlier or more severely. Well, absolutely. The more you pound on it and the more trauma you have to your knee, obviously the earlier you're going to have arthritis. So certain occupations, primarily, you know, people who kneel, squat, so people who are putting in car- carpets or if they're carrying heavy loads up and down stairs or if they're athletes and they played a lot of you know, high school or college ball, anytime you damage that cartilage, it does not have the property to regenerate like some of the other organ systems in your body. And so once it's damaged, it generally accelerates the path of normal deterioration. And in terms of actual inflammation, certainly we think of inflammatory arthritis as having redness, warmth, swelling. We don't always see that with osteoarthritic joints, but is inflammation still there? There is inflammation. Anything that causes irritation of the joint can cause pain, swelling, some increased warmth. Now, for osteoarthritis, we don't really see it as much in, as in people with inflammatory arthritis, as such as uh, rheumatoid arthritis or lupus, those type of inflammatory diseases. But these knees can get inflamed in the same way, but the temperature increase is generally not the same. To make the diagnosis, we rely, imagine, on some clinical and then some x-ray findings? Well, absolutely. Uh, first of all, it, just like in medical school, we're all taught to take a history. The history really gives you a lot of the diagnosis. So someone will come in and the complaints are usually gradual, insidious onset. It's not usually a sharp, traumatic event. So they don't know exactly when it started. And the complaints are also different. It's not usually a sharp stabbing pain. It's more of a dull ache or or stiffness. That's how it first presents. And, And patients will notice that they have diminished range of motion, they can't walk as far, or they're laying in bed at night and and they're just sore and, 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 and it just is more of an ache feeling. But instability, sharp pain, 
or some sudden event after trauma, those set us down a different pathway, and so they might have, I know, a ligament tear, cartilage tear, or even a fracture. And when the patient comes in, so after we take the history, most of the time we can make a diagnosis just by talking with the patient. And then physical examination, you'll see restricted range of motion. You'll have swelling of the joint that you can palpate. Sometimes you see deformity where people be either bow-legged or knock-kneed. So that's also a, a long-term manifestation of osteoarthritis. And big thing is x-rays. Everyone, you know, should get at least an x-ray when they come into the office or, or most times now they have the x-ray even before they come in. And, and you can see it right on the x-rays. You do not need MRIs, bone scans, CAT scans, all these other ancillary tests to diagnose osteoarthritis. Usually with a nice weight-bearing x-ray, history and physical examination, most of the time it's very self-evident. And we're talking particular joints, I imagine, hip, knee, also fingers and spine? Oh, yeah, all joints. You know, my specialty is in hip and knee osteoarthritis, but every joint generally presents the same way. And in terms of treatments, uh, sometimes I hear exercise being recommended and other times I think, oh, too much exercise will put extra stress on the joint. Well, there's a whole array of non-surgical treatment options. And that's what patients want. I mean, orthopedic surgeons, we realize that we are the, the surgical, you know, end stage, but most patients actually do quite nicely with non-surgical treatment. So generally, exercise is okay, but modified exercise. So you want to do low-impact activities. So things like tennis, basketball, racquetball, those type of things where you're running and jumping and twisting, generally not good for your knee. However, you know, water exercises, general exercise on a stationary bike or sometimes a treadmill or one of those elliptical machines just to keep the range of motion going, keeping your quadricep strength intact. Those will actually benefit you with, you know, feelings of well-being, continue your range of motion and actually lubricate the cartilage. So general exercise, but not overdoing it. And then medication-wise, we think of acetaminophen, the non-steroidals. Right. Cosamine have any role? Well, that's a little bit more complicated, but everyone Generally, you start with the traditional anti-inflammatories and, and either acetaminophen or any of the anti-inflammatories from generic aspirin to some of the longer-acting anti-inflammatories. That's the first line of treatment. As far as some of these, we call them nutraceuticals, you know, the chondroitin and glucosamines, the data actually is controversial. The good news is they don't really harm anybody. There's no really downside. The problem is, is that they are expensive. They're not really covered by any health insurance plans, and you don't need a prescription for them. But the question is, do you want to spend 20 or $25 a, a month for a material which may not help? So there's been a couple of long-term studies which show that, in general, they're not effective. And that really disappoints patients, particularly some of my patients who come in and swear that it's working. And, and that's fine because there's no downside. Mm-hmm. There is in the literature a small subset group of people who, who have had some benefit. So what I tell patients is, listen, it's not going to harm you. Uh, it might help you. So I tell patients, take it for two, maybe three months and see if it helps you. And if it does, I would continue to take it. Maybe we're just not smart enough to figure out how it does work. But if you really critically look at the data it's not going to save your knees. It may help with an anti-inflammatory effect. Craig Israelite, Assistant Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of Pennsylvania, and we are discussing advances in treatment of osteoarthritis, particularly with emphasis on surgical advances. So, Dr. Israelite, now let's, why don't we turn to the hip? Um, if some of these treatments are not adequate, people are in pain, uh, we should be thinking about hip replacements, 
Are there uh, advances that make this a less uh, uh, foreboding procedure? Oh, yeah. There's, there's been lots of advances since the 70s when the hip replacements first started. We're now well over three decades into hip replacement, and there's been a, a lot of evolution, particularly with the materials that we use. We have some better materials, which are more, shall I say, more bone-friendly. So in the earlier days, a lot of the prostheses were put in in what was called a cemented technique, where you'd actually drill a little hole, make a, a, a cement-type putty, and, and essentially pot the implants. And the good news was you had very good fixation, and it did last for a fair amount of time, but over many gait cycles, there'd be wear and tear and stress on the cement, and the cement would loosen with time for, for, for various reasons. Mm-hmm. So, so the major advancement, particularly in the early 90s and late 90s, uh, was the advancement of what's called uncemented technology. So most of the joints, not all, but most of the joints, particularly in younger active patients, which now well goes well into the 70s, as how we classify them, generally use uncemented technology. And what that means is we're taking these implants, these prosthetic implants, and we're actually hammering them into the bone to the point where there's no motion. And the bone actually has an affinity, or I should say the metal has an affinity for the bone, which holds it in place to allow hopefully a more biologic and therefore a longer-term fixation. So right now, most patients... Uh, when they see their orthopedic surgeon, their hip surgeon, most implants are, are cemented. And, and that's been very reproducible in literature and, and well accepted. The other major advance in, per, advancement, particularly over the last, let's say, four or five years, has been this advancement of what's called alternative bearing fixation. So you have to have a prosthesis that has a, a bearing capacity. And prior to the last five years, Generally, almost all the prostheses were a metal head, which was made of a cobalt chrome alloy, and a plastic cup part, and they would articulate, and just like all materials, there is wearing between the metal and the plastic, and unfortunately, the plastic would wear over time, create little particles, and cause the joint to eventually fail. Because of that, the impetus in the last five or six years have been trying to improve the bearing surfaces of other materials. And there's essentially three different types at this point. And, and the articulations, not in any order, is a metal-on-metal metal prosthesis rather than metal-on-plastic. And there's also a ceramic prosthesis, which we now put a ceramic on a ceramic. And then the last one is a little bit different than the old one, where we still have the metal ball and plastic cup, but the plastic cup is made differently. It's called cross-linking, where they actually shoot, to put it simply, some radiation into the plastic to help it cross-link to make this a stronger material. And that's also been very beneficial. So most of the studies have shown that all three of these uh, alternative bearing services provide a longevity, at least in the laboratory in some of the early studies, of a factor of 10 greater. Hmm. So many people think that we have actually developed a hip replacement which may last two or three decades. Now, we don't know that for sure because we haven't been putting them in that long. Right, but right. at least that's what the data shows. Mm-hmm. And there's pluses and minuses for each bearing surface. And it really, you have to talk to the orthopedic surgeon that you're seeing which one would be best for you. Mm-hmm. So metal on metal, uh, people use that, but there are some concerns for allergies and people with renal disease, they can't excrete some ions. There's some technical issues. So people like that would not be a candidate for a metal on metal. 
people over the age of 65 or 70 particularly, a cross-linked polyethylene, one of those plastic buttons, most likely will last them their lifetime. And so we have so much experience with that, that might be the material for them. But So the early advancement was the fixation of the prosthesis into the bone. And we think we've done a very good job with that. The next stage is now these bearing surfaces so that we don't have the ball and socket wearing so much. And all three of these materials have some pros and cons, but in general, they're at least a factor of 10 better than the old materials. Well, I want to thank Dr. Craig Israelite, who has outlined for us the process of osteoarthritis and the initial treatments, a good review for a very common problem. And then he's talked to us about some of the advances in surgical treatments of severe hip osteoarthritis and why patients are uh, recovering more quickly and also have prostheses that are lasting longer. You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania Health Systems on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To learn more about this or any other show, please visit us at ReachMD.com, where you can also register and sign up for access to our on-demand features. Thank you for listening.